Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be joined by Eva haifa Giraud, who is a professor and the author of Veganism, Politics, Practice and Theory, which examines why veganism can be so controversial and argues that veganism has the potential to act as, quote, more than a diet by disrupting assumptions about how humans relate to animals. Oh, I love that. I'm so excited about listening to this. And I'm even more excited that you did this interview and not me because she sounds very smart. Yes, she's very smart and she's thinking about all the important questions. And she did a lot of interviews with longtime vegans and got their perspective and and she's vegan herself. And I just love that there's like serious academic attention to to all of these issues, not just to animals. There should be more, but not just to that, but also to how how to affect change. And that's exactly what she's doing. I also wanted to make an announcement before we get further into our chatting, because we have some special guests to chat with, and we'll tell you about that in a second. But this is this this program that I am moderating, and it's going to be uh, available on Zoom. I'm excited about it, and it, it's actually available for free. It's, it's from the Women's Bar Association of the State of New York, and they are providing CLE credit. If you want CLE credit, that's continuing legal education credit. Then you would have to pay, but if you don't want that credit, you can attend for free. And it's about the litigation about Happy the Elephant in the in the New York State uh, Court of Appeals, which is, of course, the highest court in the state of New York against the Bronx Zoo. And it's also bringing in a, a speaker about litigation regarding the rights of natural entities such as lakes and rivers. So it's a really interesting topic. And the title, which I did not come up with, is the best title in the history of programs. It's the Elephant in the Zoo. <laughs> that's, that's easier to write than it is to say. The Elephant in the Zoom, should non-humans and natural resources be considered persons under the law? And it's on, it's really soon. It's on June 20th at 6 p.m. Eastern. And if you want to attend, you have to write to them to get the Zoom link. So just RSVP to Animal Law, that's A-N-I-M-A-L-L-A-W at NYWBA.org and say in there that you aren't seeking CLE credit so that they will know not to charge you. I'm super excited about it. Well, and of course, we will report back on it for those who can't attend, because if people are listening in real time, which I'm sure is the case, most people wake up at one in the morning on Saturdays to listen to the new episode of Our Hen House. But for the few who aren't doing that, it is just two days away from the time this airs. So we will report back on it. I also will report back on the talk I'm giving this week, which by the time you listen to this, it will have already happened. I'm sure it was what it was. <laughs> and it was it's terrific. on. It, thank you. Thank you. It's on it's on animal rights and LGBTQ advocacy for me. And it is part of the Compassion Consortium. So before we get to the interview today, Marianne, you mentioned that we have a couple very special guests today. And I've been like a little self-conscious since we started recording three minutes and 42 seconds ago because they're listening and I'm not used to people listening while we're recording it. So I just assume that we're only talking to each other. Well, you haven't, you haven't Sherry, screwed up yet. Okay, well, the night's still young. We're so excited to be joined for TOTS, which is what we call Top of the Show. That's some internal logo in, that we made up. And 
We are so, so thrilled to be joined by two of our favorite brains in the world of animal advocacy, animal law, and beyond. And that is Sherry Kolb and Michael Dorf, who have both been on the podcast before and were recent guests for our Flock Friday. So welcome again. Welcome back to our house, Sherry and Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Yeah, thanks uh, for having us. Well, we're excited to chat with you because we always have like lit up conversations with you. You always make us think for people who aren't familiar with Sherry and Michael, they're professors at Cornell Law School and the authors of Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights. They talked about that. Yes, they talked about that back on episode 329. They're also married. So they to e- kind to each of, other to, e- to each other. <laughs> so they kindly went into like different rooms in their house to record this, which is great. So we wanted to actually just dive into a subject that is very hot right now. And I guess it always is, but right now more than ever. So Marianne, do you want to contextualize this a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, well, because we spoke to to Sherry and Michael a long ago about about their book about abortion and animal rights, all of a sudden, the landscape just seems to have changed on on thinking about abortion. We thought that <laughs> was kind of put away, but it's not. And it is at again, at risk of being made illegal, at least in in many states. And so we wanted to revisit some of these issues. And we did that with Sherry and Michael on on one of our flock calls. And it was just so good and insightful that we wanted to share it with with everyone. And uh, I'll just start off by asking, because if people haven't read the book or if it's been too long since they've read the book or listened to that interview, can you just tell us what your basic themes were and, and currently are regarding the relationship between fetuses and animals and, and why you, why people shouldn't think about them as exactly the same thing? Yes. Yeah, so we've definitely evolved a bit since the that book, but what we did in the book is to suggest first that there are some common themes between the two areas. Like, for instance, you feel compassion for the fetus, you feel compassion for animals and their um, status of the fetus and the animal is contested, whether it counts as a real somebody or not and, and so on. So there are some surface similarities that, and it goes on from there. But we ultimately conclude that they're really quite different because the um, the position that uh, that a fetus or an embryo or a zygote has to stay inside this woman who may not be interested in carrying it to term, that that involves sort of uh, exploitation of the woman and that also... It doesn't matter how, like a zygote doesn't feel anything. It doesn't really have the capacity to be anything other than a cell. And yet, you know, that the pro-life, so-called pro-life movement wants to protect that against a woman who's an actual person. And that the focus in animal rights is really about sentience. So, for instance, if there were a cell and you told an animal rights person, this is a horse zygote, they would not say, well, let's make sure to stick it inside some horse so it becomes a horse. You know, they would say, well, that's just, you know, that isn't anything yet. So it's kind of the difference between human DNA as the test of value versus 
uh, sentience as the test. <laughs> to, to, if I can, that's uh, why we invited make you, that, uh, Less accessible. Uh, <laughs> please do. Please do. My role. A sort of uh, one way to put that is that for people who are opposed to all abortion, uh, humanity is a sufficient condition for rights. As long as something is human in any respect, right? So a zygote, it's just a cell, an embryo, a very, very early developed, could become a human if, if gestated and so forth. As long as it's human, it has rights. And if something doesn't have, isn't human, then it doesn't have any rights. By contrast, the animal rights movement is all against human supremacy, right? So that's that, that speciesism. So our view is whether human or non-human, if a being is sentient, then it has rights. And so we began this project by looking at a, what we thought was a puzzle, which was why there was so little overlap between the anti-abortion movement and the animal rights movement, which was we were struck by because we had met some people who were in both. And we thought, well, why isn't this a more common position? After all, they seem to have, as Sherry said, compassion both for fetuses and animals. But the more we got into it and the more we've thought about it, the more we've concluded that actually they are fairly, not quite diametrically opposed, right? But they are, they are fairly opposed movements because the animal rights position is humanity is not a necessary condition for rights, whereas the anti-abortion movement's position is humanity is a sufficient condition for rights. So that that ends ends up, there is space where one could be on, you know, any, could take any combination of views. But uh, in practice, uh, it turns out that uh, being against abortion uh, makes one uh, tend not to be very sympathetic to the animal rights position, because you sort of fetishize being a member of the human species. But what about sentience? I mean, at some point, fetuses, I, what you've already said, kind of takes care of an enormous amount of what's controversial about what's going on right now, the moment of conception, and th what I consider the complete ridiculousness of that, of setting it at that date. But what about, particularly from an animal rights perspective, if sentience matters, when does the fetus become sentient? Does it, has anybody ever really thought about that a lot? And should it matter? I think that it matters to the morality of an abortion. So if somebody, like when I hear about OBGYN practices that do 26-week abortions, it makes me a little bit queasy and uncomfortable because I just feel like I wish that had happened like 10 weeks ago or something when it wasn't. So we don't know exactly when it is sentient. It seems to be around the 20-something mark, although there are people who say it's much earlier or much later. And our position is not that abortion should be prohibited at that point. So the idea that the fetus has rights, I think the fetus has interests, and but there's still this other person in the mix and that we shouldn't be compelling her to carry it to turn. Um, but there are these laws that used to be, I mean, that I guess they exist now. They, they won't, they, they'll be preempted soon, but where you, you can't have a pain capable abortion. And those tend to be around 20 weeks. There's no really good reason to think that the fetus is sentient at 20 weeks. But what struck me and Michael about that line is that it suggests there are a lot of people in the public who are not firmly on one side or the other on this issue that they do think it matters, that sentience does matter to mm -hmm. them. And that's why I think they're called pain capable, even if, in fact, they're, they're not 
You, you see a variation of that, I think, even in uh, laws like the Texas SB8, right, which uh, the so-called heartbeat laws, which don't involve heartbeats, they involve some electrical activity. But I think the the people who are opposed to all abortions are appealing to a sort of broader middle of people who I think are at least, as Sherry says, morally queasy about abortions the later on you go. And I think the w- part of that is a kind of, you know, I, mean, I think misguided, almost aesthetic idea that the more it looks like a baby, the more it actually has the rights of a baby. But I think that's because we tend to think in those sorts of categories, right? That's It's why, you know, we as vegans take note of the kinds of animals who can have reactions to stimuli because they're indications of the things that are sort of markers for sentience. So even though I think in the general conversation, most people don't even know what the word sentience means if they've ever heard of it, I do think that something like it is driving a lot of people's moral intuitions apart from whatever you know religious beliefs they're bringing to it. Yeah, there was a, a book, I think it's called This Common Secret, but I'm not sure, where a doctor who does abortions wrote about her experience as a doctor who does abortions. And it's really, it was really tough. Like she had to wear bulletproof vest and she had to travel like four in the morning. And, and there was always this one protester who was there at the airport when she would go, like, she felt like, okay, nobody will be around at this time. And there was this one protester and he would talk to her all friendly until they got to the location. And then he would start with his, you know, your murderer and the rest. And she said in the book, I remember that she only does abortions till 14 weeks for, because ethically she can't justify doing later. And I don't know why she selected 14 weeks. Cause she doesn't, my recollection, she doesn't explain it. She just kind of sets it out there that that's when, you know, that she does it till 14 weeks. Maybe that's her sort of like buffer zone to sentience or something like that. But I think that the basic idea that being able to feel things makes you a somebody as opposed to a something is, I think, fairly widely shared, that intuition. And so that in a sense, the pro-life movement is pushing against that when it talks about conception. Yeah, it almost seems like it's overplaying their hand. Can we just go back a second? Because I I just find that this term sentience, which personally, I hate the word because nobody, as you point out, nobody knows what it means. I don't know why we don't use conscious. And I once once was listening to an interview with a fairly sophisticated writer. She she was a, a science fiction writer, and she talked about writing a book about sentient cats. I was like, what? You don't think cats are sentient now? Like, (laughs) what? And a lot of people think it means something very different than what the way we use it. So can you kind of define what you would mean as as sentient? I mean, you just use the word feeling. Is it as simple as that? It's the ability to have subjective experiences, right? So to feel so feeling is an example of something that someone who is sentient uh, experiences. But if you imagine somebody who's anesthetized, but uh, awake, they they're sentient. Um, it's a being that is capable of having their own experiences, right? So just to give an example, right? You know, a toaster uh, is not sentient, even though it does stuff. You can have an electronically programmed toaster. You could uh, destroy your toaster. You know, you you uh, you short it out, right? Uh, and that would be unfortunate for the person who owns the toaster. But the toaster doesn't experience any any harm from that. Uh, by contrast, with you know, a dog, a cat, a horse, a pig. A cow, 
a stuffed animal. Right, stuffed animal would also be another right, right. another good example. Is like <laughs> yes. yes, yep. I, I'm picking up what you're putting down, uh, and relatedly, I I've this keeps occurring to me whenever I think about this issue. I've certainly heard of animal activists who feel that these issues are related, but I've never heard of an anti-abortion activist who cared about animals. Have you? Yeah, we know some. Yeah, there was somebody at Summerfest where we went for, we used to go each summer for these conferences and food and whatever. And she was very much, she was, and actually Bruce Friedrich, like he didn't say that he was, but he, he very much found the two positions to be in sync with, with each other. Like we were talking about, I was telling him that we were writing about this and he's like, Oh yeah, these two, they totally go together. And, you know, he really seemed, not necessarily to hold the positions, but to think that they made sense together. And then there's that guy who authored Dominion, Matthew Scully. And- oh, yeah, Matthew Scully. In addition, when um, shortly after our book came out, uh, Peter Singer hosted a little mini symposium on it. And two of the commentators were uh, uh, anti-abortion, but sympathetic. They're, they're not vegans. I think actually you had one of them as a guest in your show, Charles, Charlie Camosi. That was when we found out he wasn't vegan in the middle of my interview. Right, right. But he is, as Jasmine says, sort of sympathetic to the uh, the animal cause. And the, no, he admits he should be vegan. He's one yeah, of those. Right. Uh, right. Right. So there was him and, and uh, a professor called uh, uh, Karen Pryor Swallow. And so they they were both sort of critiquing our book from the um, anti-abortion side while at least having some concern for animals. There is a position. It, it is a minority position, but there is there are people who occupy it. When you mentioned them, I feel a little bit nostalgia for the time when people thought we really listened to the anti-abortion side and fairly represented them because I've kind of lost interest in doing that in the last few months, <laughs> ever since the, the leaked opinion, uh, actually since the oral argument in, in Dobbs. So I'm, I have an easier time being generous when I'm not being like pummeled. <laughs> Yeah, I I am curious because you did say early on in this conversation that your perspectives have shifted. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? I mean, now I'll just speak for myself because and then Michael can say whether he agrees or not. But I I think that in some ways, the pro-life movement is the opposite of the animal rights movement. And what I mean by that is that there's a certain kind of species narcissism about the pro-life movement that people, I think, somehow project themselves onto the zygote and they think, what if my mother hadn't had me? And it's like, yeah, the world would have been just about the same. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, they and they so they project onto the zygote and they want to do all this stuff for the zygote, even though the zygote's living inside somebody else. And then they, they don't really care about animals for the most part, as you said, it's because it doesn't really fit that. It's like an, it's an outsider. An animal is an outsider, a stranger. And that the animal rights movement says, you know, let's look around and see whether there's somebody who needs us, you know, as opposed to let's exploit someone who doesn't want to be pregnant to turn raw material into a child. I don't disagree with that. But I guess what I would say is that the discussion over the last several months I think has intensified my awareness of the extreme sexism of the full-on anti-abortion position. So one of the things that's sort of notable about 
uh, Justice Alito's leaked draft, which Sherry has commented on in, you know, over a dozen blog posts by now on my blog. Brilliant, brilliant blog posts. Dorfonlaw.org, right, is that it's it's sexist in all sorts of ways. So it repeated, it, it relies on Sir Matthew Hale, who is this uh, very famous uh, uh, English judge who sentenced two women to die for witchcraft, who believed, importantly, that uh, in the marital rape exception, who thought that uh, rape victims shouldn't be believed. And, and, you know, Alito just relies on him matter-of-factly. There's no mention of the burdens that pregnancy places on women, other than that, you know, some people think this is a big deal. Um, and it's, so it's, it's sort of erasing the pregnant person in this equation. And so in some ways, that ties into part of our book and some of Sherry's solo writing about how uh, much of the exploitation of animals is sort of parallel to what anti-abortion measures do, which is that they enlist female animals, dairy cows and layer hens in particular, into a reproductive servitude. So in that sense, I think the, the recent conversation has reinforced that element, which sort of goes along with what Sherry said about how the, there really is very little room for overlap between these two movements. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. Somebody on Facebook wrote, you know what they call someone who is forced to bear children for others? Livestock. And I, I almost repeated it, except that this is coming from a perspective that livestock is a legitimate category and that it's okay to do this to animals, but not to women. And so I didn't, you know, so I decided not to follow it or whatever, whatever it was. Because I, I, it's hard when you have like both two positions that are both kind of out, like out there in a, a certain way, and then you, you want to make sure you don't betray one by promoting the other. Well, there are so many inroads to interesting discussions regarding the overlaps between abortion rights and animal rights and just so many other things we could chat about. I do just want to add one thing. Like, I, I love the way this does open up this conversation about sentience, because I can imagine there are a lot of people who, when if they thought about it, and unless they're coming from an extremely religious position, don't agree that abortion should be banned from the moment of conception. They do agree. If they thought about it, they would agree. And you've pointed out, Sherry, I think that there are a few states that have laws to that effect, that it that it starts basically at sentience. And it, you know, I just think we can't have people thinking about sentience too much. It's it, it's something that people just, just, they don't consider it in any serious way. And it is kind of the entire root of our movement. So I just wanted to add that. I think it's an important moment to, to actually focus on that. I agree. I think that one of the things that... I think is interesting. I mean, I just refer to Facebook again. Don't get me wrong. I don't spend a lot of time on it, but huh. there was some, heard that before. But somebody, had, yeah, but somebody had posted something like the, the cow doesn't give milk because she's a cow. She gives it because she's a mother. And I was thinking that the kinds of misconceptions and the idea that a cow is naturally giving milk is kind of similar to this idea that women are naturally pregnant. And so the idea of how a pregnant woman is the most natural thing and, you know, and it's terrible violence to put an end to it. When in fact, like if somebody said, dropped a drug into a drink that you were having, and then as a result of it, you gained 70 pounds, you created a whole other organ that would siphon off nutrients and oxygen 
from your bloodstream into that made you vomit for like three months or more, you would be like, hey, I've been poisoned. <laughs> like this is not a normal, um, this is not natural in any positive sense. And so, but, but we kind of assume like, oh yeah, the cow has these udders. I used to think that. I used to think that. We all did. We all did. Um, and, you know, it's just it's just what cows are like. And it's like, hey, we're all mammals. But it kind of shows you both areas, I think, shows you how much laziness there is and how we think about moral issues when we're not forced to really delve into them. Or when we're motivated uh, to hold particular positions to begin with. <laughs> Even more so. Even more so. Before we let you go and get to our uh, main interview today, I just have a, a couple additional questions for you. First of all, Sherry, I know that you're a big fan of Christopher Sebastian, who was on our show last week. And I'm not, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, and I'm not trying to just be a big ad for that episode, but what did you think? <laughs> I, 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 I love Christopher. I mean, he's great and he's so creative and comes up with really interesting ways of thinking about things that, you know, I'd never thought about before. Like he's talked about how dairy milk is actually, you know, the, the, the sort of um, fetishization of it is kind of white supremacist because people who aren't white have a harder time digesting it and so on. And it was interesting what he was saying about the, about how on the farm, there's all this sexual assault of animals in order to impregnate the animals, in order to make them ejaculate. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's really a chock full of sexual assault zone. And yet it's not considered to be a violation of the bestiality laws. And so I was thinking about why is that? Um, and what I came up with was that, like, it's not considered sex unless the human is having pleasure. <laughs> Like that's the, the, like the human is kind of in this, I don't want to sound too pomo about it, but the human is kind of this, like the man. And we tend to discount and make invisible any sexual experiences where a man is not involved. And it could be that since the human, the human takes the place of the, of the man as sort of the dominant character at the farm. And since that person is not doing it for sexual pleasure, therefore it doesn't count. I do know that in there's at least one state in which they actually wrote in an exception to the bestiality law for artificial insemination. But but in general, I really do find it hard to believe anybody would ever get prosecuted for it. I think that's a fascinating thought of, of why it just isn't sex unless unless a human is, is having a good time. Wow. Thank you so much, Sherry. I, I always appreciate your perspective and I also wanted to know what else you two have up your sleeve. What what are you working on these days? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, we're each working on various other projects, but the um, the animal specific piece that we have that should be out and available in print uh, relatively soon in the Journal of Law and Equality, which is a uh, MIT Press journal edited by three Harvard Law School professors. I think it's called the American Journal of Law and Equality. Right, the American Journal of Law and Equality. Um, generally, they don't write about have animal stuff, but but they, they're publishing our paper. It's called, If We Didn't Eat Them, They Wouldn't Exist, 
and it addresses that argument, which Sherry addressed a little bit in her book, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger, uh, and other questions people ask vegans, but we sort of take a deep dive into it, right? The idea that, well, these animals were bred specifically to be eaten or for their products to be eaten. And so as long as they have decent lives or lives worth living up until the time that they're slaughtered or otherwise exploited, uh, you're actually doing them a favor when you consume them and their products. And so what the article does is first to say that's unrealistic in the vast majority of cases because the animals don't have lives worth living because they're suffering far outweighs any pleasure they get. It's a sort of fantasy notion of a farm. But we then take seriously, well, what if somebody really did have like, you know, a, a hobby farm where they really treated the animals well? We uh, describe that question as similar to a deep problem in moral philosophy known as the non-identity problem, which I can just illustrate very uh, briefly, right? So this this is a class of problems. The a classic example is are descendants of people who suffered historical injustices like slavery and the Holocaust, etc., made worse off by those historical injustices in light of the fact that they wouldn't have existed if not for those historical injustices because of so-called butterfly effects that brought together their parents on particular dates and times and so forth. And I think everybody has a strong moral intuition that, of course, you can complain about this uh, terrible injustice done to your ancestors, even if it was necessary for your existence. And that, that has parallels in it. And we, so we, we're trying to explain the, the connections. But I haven't done that justice. You'll have to have us back. <laughs> yes. No, I was just thinking that I would really love to. So please let us know when that is available and come back and discuss it with us. And and can you let our listeners know how they can follow both of your work? Yes. So Sherry and I both write for two main popular, uh, I use popular in quotation marks, um, <laughs> widely available for free outlets. One is uh, a web magazine called Verdict, which is verdict.justia, J-U-S-T-I-A dot com. Uh, it's a law-oriented website, but it has legal commentary and we have lots of stuff there. Uh, we alternate weeks. So every week there's either a column by me or a column by Sherry. And then I have a blog, dorfonlaw.org, at which both Sherry and I and a few other people blog. And there, there are basically four people who blog regularly. Three out of the four of us are vegan. Uh, Neil Buchanan is the other vegan who blogs there regularly. Although a lot of the time it's not about animal issues, but sometimes it is. And sometimes it's on sort of animal adjacent issues like all of Sherry's uh, flaming posts recently about uh, abortion. Amazing. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes. So thank you both so much for sharing your insights on this subject with us. We always, always appreciate your perspectives. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, I feel like that was kind of a full episode. I can't believe we have, this is like two, a two episode in one special. Let's just call it that. This is a, you're listening to the Our Hen House two episode in one special. And we are now going to transition to Marianne's interview today, which is with Eva haifa who is a senior lecturer in digital media and society at the University of Sheffield and is the author of Veganism, Politics, Practice, and Theory. She studies the way that activists negotiate tensions associated with the media platforms they use, particularly the challenges posed by social media, as well as ways of thinking and acting in the world that move beyond the treatment of some humans as exceptional. She will be joining Marianne right after this. 
Abbott's Butcher is leading the next generation of plant-based meat by using real food ingredients to craft premium plant-based proteins that are flavorful, protein-packed, and super versatile. Abbott's Butcher is the only plant-based meat brand that is free of soy, gluten, preservatives, and canola oil. And they never include any added natural or artificial flavorings. Their meats are absolutely delicious and so easy to prepare. Even I was able to do it. And as you might know, I'm not the best cook in the world. I particularly enjoyed the chorizo, which we prepared alongside a bunch of vegetables as a sort of taco salad. It was so good and so easy. And I myself mostly eat gluten-free and mostly eat whole foods. And this fit right in. We also tried the incredible chopped chicken and the ground beef. And the ground beef, I added some vegan cheese and it kind of gave me like a hamburger helper feel. I loved it. So look for Abbott's Butcher Chorizo in Target stores or visit abbottsbutcher.com. And I'm going to spell that for you. That's A-B-B-O-T-S butcher.com. Again, it's abbottsbutcher.com. There's two B's, one T. And that way you'll find a retailer near you. I love this and I know you will too. Welcome to our hen house, Eva. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you because you've written such an interesting book, which I have right here. And because you're speaking to us from the UK and you're an expert in thinking about veganism in the UK. And we're all really excited here in the States about what's happening to veganism in the UK because you're you're really going much further along than, than we are. But the other side of that, though, is that you have some concerns and it's a good time to bring those concerns to the forefront as things are starting to grow. And your concerns are about what the success of veganism can mean within the capitalist structure. And can you talk a little bit about that and what the, those risks are? Yes. Yeah, so my concerns really emerged after speaking to a lot of long-term vegans from the UK about what they felt about this kind of real surge in popularity of veganism over the past five years or so. One thing that everybody had really observed was that even though veganism was becoming really, really accessible on a practical level that made people quite excited. People said things like it was great to be able to go and take a train journey and not have to rely on crisps or, or peanuts for food, you know, that you can get a vegan sausage roll or a sandwich re really easily now and you don't really have to think about it. So people were really excited from a practical perspective, thought it opened up all these potentials for accessibility and potentially for a sort of democratization of, of veganism because of that. But the flip side of that is um, a lot of questions were being raised about who was capitalizing on that newfound popularity of veganism and whether that was somehow depoliticizing or undercutting its more kind of radical histories in the UK, where it's been very much obviously tied in, not just with animal liberation, although that's you know, the thing that people were particularly worried about, but concern with sort of human inequities around food production, concerns with environmental politics. So I think many people saw veganism 
as having this very specific activist history that tried to chart connections with other social justice issues, a kind of a food justice, I suppose, politics. And with its newfound popularity, in some ways, people were concerned that that more radical political potential was being undermined in some way. You know, if you can go and buy a vegan burger at McDonald's, which you can in the UK, does that mean that all of the other injustices associated with certain large food corporations can then be swept to one side. So those were the types of issues that people I spoke to had and concerns that I began to have as well when thinking about the kind of promise, but also the pitfalls associated with something like veganism that's, you know, had this very strong and vibrant activist history suddenly exploding as a kind of marketized phenomenon as it has done here. Yeah, I I totally hear you. And certainly we've not had the explosion of veganism here that that you have, but you know, there has been a good deal of growth. And, you know, I was just thinking this morning, if you'll forgive me, I'll tell a little story because I just was thinking of it this morning because I wore my Farm Sanctuary shirt today and Farm Sanctuary is the largest farm sanctuary here. And I used to go there 25 years ago and it was just like, there was, it was just this small place and it, you could get a room there to stay there. They had these little cabins and, and it was like this lovely thing, like all of these people who, who were just so committed and so passionate. And, and now Farm Sanctuary is doing great and no complaints about it, but they have these really fancy cabins and, and you have to reserve them six months ahead of time. And this is all good, but it just kind of remind. it was kind of a little capsule of the story you're talking about. Within success, there come, I don't know, I'm not sure it's pitfalls even, but possible pitfalls that, that we should, know about in order to avoid. But on the other side, because you're talking about, to some extent, the connections between animal rights, veganism, and and other causes, workers' rights, and, and the whole gamut of, of human harms. But it's not like the left has been particularly good on, on veganism or on animals. And, and the leftist critiques of veganism, which are often I've seen on Twitter, and you repeated this phrase, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. That's not quite right, is it? I hope it's not right. I think phrases like that are what I was trying to problematize a little bit in the book, in a sense, because I think obviously that's a really important point in some ways. But on the other hand, it can kind of lead, or I worry it can lead to a situation of feeling like you can do nothing at all, a sense of sort of helplessness and even like apathy. If we can't do anything, well, we might as well go and eat something which has been incredibly harmful to animals, humans and, and the planet. And, and I think while acknowledging that um, consumption has certainly got its limits as a form of um, ethical practice, I think at the same time, it's really important to kind of recognise, as you say, certain potentials, certain certain things it can, I suppose it can offer a sort of reorientation, an entry point into a much more kind of complex politics. Certainly when I first became vegan, to, to talk about one of my personal anecdotes, it was simply through, I don't know, going on live journal communities where people were talking about different products in, in a fairly kind of commercial sense. But then you'd end up having these really complicated debates about um, food politics, food justice, inequity, you know, and, and it was a really 
interesting space to be sort of exploring different issues. So even though I became vegan really for quite superficial reasons in some ways 20 years ago, I became much more politicised through, I suppose, becoming part of communities. And it's, it's those connection points, though, that I think people are quite concerned, or certainly the vegans, some of the vegans I spoke to, were slightly concerned were being eroded in, in UK contexts. So one of the things that um, several people I spoke to said was that when they first became vegan about sort of 15 years ago or so, you'd go to a kind of vegan cafe and there'd be lots of sort of stickers and pamphlets and leaflets that were, you know, that were connecting you to all sorts of other campaigns, you know, whether that's in the UK sort of hunt stabbing for, for fox hunting, which is a kind of upper class pastime essentially. It was a kind of really big point of connection that people would make. And then there were all these different sorts of um, potentials to make links do you get the same form of opportunities to be part of a wider ethical community if you're, I don't know, going to a fast food restaurant that's selling a kind of burger to capitalise on veganuary? I don't know. I think it's an empirical question, really, that, that kind of will probably only get a sense of the answer of in five years' time down the road, really. But I think these are kind of questions that need to be asked. Somebody I spoke to likens it at the moment, almost to your favourite band going going global, you know, that you feel a bit ambivalent about it because, you know, you support that band when you went to see them in a local pub with your friends and you were kind of back them and are, are really excited by the fact that so many other people are getting into the same music as you. But you sort of worry about how things are changing as well. And I, and I thought that was a really interesting analogy for thinking about the popular popularisation, really, of, of veganism in the UK. It's this really exciting moment for a lot of people and people are seeing so much potential. But are there those points of entry into more sort of politicised activist forms of veganism in the same way? And I think that's what people are slightly worried about, I'd say. Yeah, I, I think it's certainly something that needs to be replaced or should be replaced. But on the other hand, we don't want the animals to have to wait until we actually can take down capitalism in order to get out of the other hell that they're living in. It's got to be a, a good thing as well. Yeah, and I think I would not necessarily have written the book in quite the same way even sort of a couple of years down the line, because bear, bearing in mind, it takes a little while for these things to, to come out. And I think I would have taken a slightly more a slightly more nuanced take. I tried to talk about the potentials as well, but I do think in my book, I really talked about the pitfalls and depoliticization that um, is emerging with this kind of rise of plant-based capitalism, where you get these kind of really interesting things in the UK where food marketers are sort of putting out leaflets, promoting kind of plant-based food as the new kind of food trends that everybody should try to kind of get in on and divorce that really from any kind of meaningful concern with animals themselves. The animals kind of go out of the picture in a, in a lot of ways. And I think sort of from my perspective, I, I think it's really important to for veganism to become democratized in in a way that often happens through consumption and that often happens through marketization and, and i wouldn't want to sort of reject that potential particularly because it's quite elitist isn't it saying that you know the only proper veganism is going to 
<laughs> like really expensive health food shop. That's a really problematic stance. And and ultimately, from the from the point of view of the animals, for an individual, like any reason they go vegan is a good reason because they're not eating you. But as a yeah, as a system, it is we we can't lose that. And not everyone is going to be politicized, probably. But the opportunity to to be politicized, I, I hear you. That does seem to be very different. It's just very easy to like just kind of adopt veganism as a nice idea. Or another th- trend that's become so popularized and seems to be driving, certainly seems to be driving the adoption of vegan foods in the U.S. and which you talk about is like flexitarianism, being partially vegan. Whereas if you're at all political, it just seems incoherent, or at least political about animals, not political about the other issues that veganism supports, but political about animals, it, it's incoherent. Like why, if it's bad to eat 50, it's bad to eat one. I mean, they're, they're still living beings. At the same time, I feel like I get too purist in my, in my attitudes here. And this is probably a good thing, but can you explain to me why? So in terms of the flex, I'll talk about flexitarianism first and then I'll, I'll sort of move on to the purism comment. In terms of flexitarianism, I think it's fascinating how that, that narrative has been wholesale taken on by a lot of food marketers. And you get these very contradictory and slightly problematic situations. So for example, a couple of years ago, a famous fast food manufacturer launched a vegan burger to kind of coincide with Veganuary. And they were then fined by the Advertising Standards Association because even though it was called the sort of, um, I think it was called a plant-based burger or or a rebel burger, that was it, it was a rebel burger. And it mentioned plant-based butcher, it mentioned, you know, all the wrapper was in green. And it was very much, you know, branded as a vegan burger but it turned out it wasn't vegan and many people had eaten this burger and were pretty upset to find out that even though it had been marketed it it wasn't vegan and their um, rationale was it was never targeted at vegans it was targeted at flexitarians you know they were going for the flexitarian market and they were sort of using in their defense plant-based vegan flexitarian, almost interchangeably. And I think it's that sort of slippage between those terms where kind of veganism is just framed as a sort of interchangeable personal option you can dip in or dip out of, where I think it's sort of vulnerable to depoliticization um, or it makes it difficult to be part of a kind of wider ethical community. For me, veganism is just a helpful way of navigating the world in terms of making it clear what I eat, what I don't eat, what I believe, what I, what I don't believe. And it's that kind of loss of veganism as a kind of, yeah, ethical tool to navigate life that I'm concerned about with that that rise of flexitarianism. But as you say, can it lead to a real kind of purism that is incredibly exclusionary? That's the kind of flip side of that, isn't it? You know? We all know it can because we've all met those vegans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we've both been thought of as those vegans by other people. So everybody draws their line. Everybody draws their line. And I think that kind of act of ethical line drawing is really interesting. And I think that as individuals, people really worry about so many people I spoke to use that exact term. Like, where do you draw your line? For different people, it's 
in slightly different ways. And, and for many people I spoke to, it was the kind of activist histories that really helped them draw the line in, in particular ways. So where certain fast food companies had got a history of persecuting activists or a history of engaging in incredibly damaging practices towards non-human animals, that, that was the kind of line and for them. And e- even if those companies served a vegan burger, it was felt that there was a kind of, they, they couldn't, I suppose, breach that, that line in what they did. No, I think there are still a lot of people who feel, I mean, Burger King, we don't have a McDonald's vegan burger yet, but we have a Burger King Impossible Burger. And I'm sure there are many, many people, probably many who are listening, who wouldn't ever go to Burger King. And then there are many others who think, this is great. This is great. We have to support Burger King. We, we, yeah, we, I, maybe it's not so, so important where exactly we draw the line is that we're thinking about the line because that means we're thinking politically. Yeah. And I actually think discussions about where the line is are some of the richest sources of debate and discussion. And that's in some ways why I think it's really important to maintain some sense of kind of clarity around veganism because it opens up those forms of communication. I think there's a lot of concern about being overly purist or about being overly flexible. And actually many of those discussions and debates open up the most interesting ethical questions for me those reflections on where exactly do we draw the line and why are sort of an entry point to complexity rather than something that shuts it down. Well, I'm glad you said that because I do find those conversations often extremely annoying. And that gives me a new perspective on on thinking. There are a way to think things through. Another problem that I have, and I don't know whether, maybe it's not a problem, I don't know, but it's this word vegan. It is being asked to do so much work. There's a, there's vegan food, like a vegan meal, a vegan diet, a vegan lifestyle, a vegan person, which is now we're switching to a whole different concept, a vegan person, as kind of the definition that I use is one who refrains from the consumption and use of animals, or a vegan person, which I think is more the definition that you use, is one who embraces a more general philosophy of liberation. Is it a problem that that this word is doing all these different things? Do we need more words? Or it, it occurred to me as I was writing this question down, because I wanted to ask you about it, that maybe it's good that all of these things kind of drift into each other and we're not exactly sure what we mean all the time, since that can get a little too rigid for people. I read a really interesting article about this as I was finishing the book and I kind of put in a reference to it um, really briefly, but would have loved to engage with it more. And it was by um, Jan Dukovic and Jonathan Dickstein. And they were arguing for maintaining a much more minimalist practice space. I found that really persuasive in saying that actually we don't want to, sometimes it is inaccessible and confusing to have these proliferations of, of different types of veganisms all with a different suffix. But I do feel again that it can open up rather than shut down discussion. What do we mean when we talk about veganism? It is asked to do a lot of work. But I think that just then can potentially encourage people to be kind of more precise in terms of how they situate themselves, how they set up their arguments. One of the reasons I thought it was really important to make clear from the start that um, I was writing from a UK perspective is that I think it's really easy to universalise about what veganism is and, and means and sort of uproot it from particular social and national contexts, which I think is a, a really problematic thing to do because it's enacted, but it's also contested in different ways. And 
for different reasons in different contexts. And, and I think one of the concerns I'd have with trying to, to sort of, um, one of the concerns I'd have with stripping away all these different meanings and understandings of veganism is I think it is useful to have a vocabulary to sort of be precise about the type of veganism we're talking about in order to situate and contextualize why we're understanding veganism in the in the way we are. Another thing that strikes me about thinking of veganism in the very broad sense of supporting liberation is that I'm the only person who thinks this, but I've been thinking it for a long time, so I'm just going to lay, lay it out there. Like animal rights advocates can be found and vegans can be found in every in every possible aspect of the political spectrum. Yeah, it's more it's more kind of on the left, but certainly there are billions of people on the left who would never consider being vegan. And also you find like really like in this country Republican, conservative people who you don't agree with about anything else. And of course, that's becoming more and more vicious, <laughs> the, amount, the amount we disagree with each other. But animal rights and even veganism does kind of cross the spectrum. Do you think there's any promise in this that that if we don't take a broad view of what veganism means and li- it just it's it's about animals, it's totally about animals, that it could be the one source left of common ground among people who hate each other for every other reason. All right, I'm putting that in dramatic terms, but we're living in dramatic times. We are living in dramatic times, but I would say that I'd be quite wary, partly because of the way that veganism and animal rights has been kind of utilised in a very cynical way by certain political groups in the UK, for instance. So um, we had a very nationalist, political party um, a while back called the British National Party who have thankfully kind of collapsed in on themselves. And they had an animal rights page on their website. And their animal rights page just simply consisted of being anti-halal and anti-kosher. And that was their kind of stance. And the thing that I kind of would very much kick back against, I suppose, is the idea that there'd be any sort of common ground with that political perspective that veganism could be co-opted to those ends. I mean, especially since they weren't supporting veganism and it was very, I, I know that the whole halal slaughter thing has been a much bigger issue, I think, in, in Europe generally, and it being co-opted as an animal rights issue when it really was not, by some people was nothing of the sort. But I, you know, I guess the person I always think of is Matthew Scully, who wrote the book Dominion. I don't know whether you're familiar with it. It's quite a while ago came from a somewhat, not a really religious perspective. And like, he's like (laughs) speechwriter for Sarah Palin, like just as Republican as you can get. But I think his veganism is quite sincere. I really do. And I think his animal rights, um, you know, he's, he's vegan and very disturbed by this. So maybe he's the only one. It's possible. (laughs) But but I still think that there might be some, I I agree with you, it could be exploited for specific issues like that, particularly when they're related ethnically to some particularly disliked group. But I'll move on from that because I have so much to ask you. Because I really, I mean, I wanted to ask you about white veganism and how that's become a term and what's wrong with that term? Because, you know, I'm white and I'm vegan. So I could think, well, what's wrong with that? But but it's become to mean something very specific. Can you go into that? And then I want to talk about black veganism, because I think these are both really interesting phenomena. So one of the things that's, that's kind of, I suppose, a real 
difference and a, a sort of problematic difference, really. I think in the UK, some, sometimes these discussions around veganism don't tend to discuss race and certainly don't discuss whiteness. And there's been much more kind of awareness because of valuable scholarship from the US and from sort of North American contexts that have drawn attention, I think, to the particular really problematic forms of vegan campaigning, I suppose, that make incredibly insensitive like analogies between the mistreatment of animals and, and humans or, or even work that sort of assumes that speciesism is a kind of the fundamental oppression that all others stem from. You know, many, many people have suggested that that doesn't take into account the particular histories of colonialism either either and it's certainly in a sufficiently sophisticated way and I think in the UK a lot of um, vegan scholarship and activism is sort of take, trying to take account of those arguments and think about how they apply to a context such as the UK that doesn't have it's the seat of empire you know it, we're the kind of the, you, you do have a colonial history yeah but the problem is the way it's manifested is slightly different that leads those discussions not to be centralized in the same way as i say with this this kind of imperial power that's wreaked havoc essentially and but in the, in the uk itself because it's just a slightly there are different it just plays out in a very different way and I think people have had to kind of reckon with the idea of white veganism slightly differently. So, so even some of the controversies that have happened in the US with the sort of infamous blog and recipe book series that I won't name, people didn't quite kind of understand that to begin with until it was um, explained in depth and kind of debated. So, yeah, so I'm not answering that that question very well. So what, what I was kind of concerned with tracing, I suppose, in the book was this very kind of problematic form of veganism that neglected or didn't think about the relationship between human and animal oppression in ways that kind of engaged in these very sort of insensitive forms of campaigning that have been talked about really extensively by other theorists, such as um, particularly really great work by um, Breeze Harper or Aff and Silco, I think, their work has just done been incredibly important in sort of drawing attention to those problems. On on the flip side, one of the things that I was trying to talk about in the book was sometimes the centralization of white veganism could itself be problematic and kind of central inadvertently sort of centralize quite a kind of Anglo-centric or Anglo and North American centric idea of what veganism is, which obviously carries its own erasures. And some of the people that I interviewed felt quite kind of personally upset that their own experiences had been kind of neglected or, or as I say, erased by conflating white veganism with all veganism. And I think that binary has, has been talked about by a lot of people, as I say, such as the theorists I've mentioned. And so that, that that's the kind of double, I suppose, bind that I was, I wanted to just set out. I don't, as a white passing person, I didn't think it was my kind of place to kind of make an argument on my own terms, but I wanted to kind of try to map out what other scholars who've been working in this area a long time had been saying about kind of whiteness and veganism. 
But the other side of that coin, so to speak, I don't understand whether, and you can give me information on this, whether Black veganism is as important a movement in the UK as it in the is in the US. I mean, Black people in the US are going vegan at a much higher rate than white people. It's a movement in and of itself, and people are writing about it. Scholars are starting to examine it. It's really interesting. And though we don't have the same history of being the colonial power, we have the history of slavery, which is just a really important, rather than just talking about colonialism and animal consumption, in this country, the relationship is not just between colonialism, but slavery and animal consumption. And that's really being examined. And of course, I mean, from an from an everyday person's point of view, the enormous health implications. And I'm not sure what my question is here. I guess my question is, is this as important a force in the UK? Is it specifically an American phenomenon? And and do you find hope in it? I think it's obviously incredibly hopeful. And and anything for me that kind of decenters one singular narrative about veganism that sort of stems from one particular national context I think is an important thing in kind of pluralizing what what veganism is and means and who is seen as a typical vegan etc. In the UK what I'd say is that there are certainly movements there are there are online communities for vegans of color in in the UK that are very um, active but I think there is a lack of I, I do feel that we're in a, a quite problematic moment in the UK politically, not just with sort of Brexit, with um, narratives about universities shutting down freedom of speech and, and kind of veganism gets in, enrolled into these narratives in kind of really weird ways. So we had a popular TV programme where the host sort of spat out a vegan sausage roll live on television and kind of attributed it to sort of the rise of the snowflake culture and you know so it gets enrolled in this kind of really complicated culture wars narrative in in quite a specific way in in the UK where it's kind of conflated with a sort of millennial awareness of injustice etc so so it's got a kind of slightly different resonance I suppose also I'd say that in the UK I suppose the particular way diasporic communities in the UK where that have allowed certain forms of vegetarian and vegan food to really flourish, like cities with large um, South Asian sort of populations, for example. And so I think veganism's become, got quite a kind of complicated relationship in those contexts because you've got these kind of long-standing vegetarian communities with their own restaurants and food cultures. And then suddenly with the popularization of veganism, obviously you then get the kind of hipster vegan restaurants kind of commercializing street food kind of coming in and, and selling products which feels a little bit of a, a kind of appropriation and and that seems to be the site of a lot of debate and discussion at the moment the kind of politics of food appropriation it kind of brings us back to the problem we're talking about the capitalism and success within a capitalist world brings its issues and they have to be dealt with. But I'm not sure the success is a bad thing. The issues can be a bad thing. Since I have you here and since you're a sociologist, I'm not sure I've really heard about people's attitudes or the problem of people's attitudes towards eating animals 
from a sociological perspective. I mean, obviously, Melanie Joy and, and, and others have, have, have discussed these weird attitudes about eating animals from psychological perspective, the whole question of cognitive dissonance on an individual basis. Like, but I mean, I find the fact that people eat animals, even though I did it for many years, just bizarre, like so bizarre, like people who care about animals. There are, you know, there are other people, there are some people who really don't, but most people really do. And just are horrified by seeing any of this and they just don't want to stop eating them. So from your perspective, why? <laughs> why? I why don't do people get animals? it. I'll never get it. <laughs> why do people eat animals? Well, one thing I'd say is that in terms of sort of vegan sociology, um, I wouldn't set myself up totally as a, I'm working in a sociology department now, but there are some people who I think do some really valuable sociological work on this, such as Corey Lee Wren, who runs a network called the Vegan Feminist Network. So I'd say, and Matthew Cole and Kate Stewart, they again do really valuable sociological work. Erica Cudworth, again. And I tend to approach things more from a sort of media and cultural studies perspective. I'm sort of interested in how narrative. Uh, I think those subjects are very relevant to the question of why people do things. So anyway, just as a human being, I won't ask you as a sociologist, but just as a human being, why? You found out what was happening and you stopped. I found out what was happening and I stopped. And I don't know about you, but I'm not that much better than most of the people I know in, in other ways. Like, it's not like I'm this miraculous human being, but most people, wonderful people, people who are wonderful in their lives in many other ways, find out what's happening and they do not stop. So why is that? I'm going to answer that as a sociologist, In <laughs> even though I've just said I'm not a sociologist. I would say that is an empirical question and there are probably a huge diversity of reasons why people don't stop and that more sort of sociological research is really needed to kind of examine those questions. I don't think we can answer these questions necessarily on an individual level by kind of talking about how individuals think and feel because these are to do with social structures. They're often to do with inequalities that shape who can and can't have access. I want to leave that one out though, because yes, there are, pe- there are some people who can't. I'm talking about people who can. People who can. Okay. But even then, I think there are sort of forces of sort of socialization. There are people who can, but maybe have got kind of deep rooted commitments to that feel genuinely that I'm from a really rural area and I think genuinely people are anxious about livelihoods. They're genuinely anxious about kind of things changing dramatically. And and I can kind of dislike that or find it deeply problematic, but I think I can't dismiss it in terms of that's how people are feeling. And I think these are kind of really important social and cultural kind of issues that need more research that needs you know the questions can only be asked on a collective level really rather than zooming in on the individual which is why it's important to situate things in say a capitalist context or a yeah a national context or a particular yeah yeah that does seem that does seem really right that it's not for most people there are those people who will take this decision and go with it, even though it goes against the grain of, of the general social milieu. But but most people, so sociology is perhaps more the field that is relevant here than psychology, because it's, for most people, what you eat is not an individual question, apparently. Did you ever think it could all change on a dime? 
that the world will just suddenly wake from this insane fever dream where we do this horrendous stuff to animals and realize that that we can and we should stop doing this to animals. Like it does seem like because it is social, it just does seem like everybody could change all of a sudden. I do think that then social social structures are kind of durable, aren't they? If you think about why things it's embedded in the institutions. Again, I think that's why sociology is quite useful. You've got you've got people who are talking about well, how do these things get embedded in in institutions? Everything from food ordering systems, and you know, it's not it's not just the way people talk or think or believe different things about animals. It's the kind of mundane infrastructures that shape what we can and can't do on a on a day to day level. Can I order a particular type of food or can't I? Can I access, um, is, is, the, is the catering infrastructure set up at this particular, I don't know, organisation set up in such a way that it limits what choices are and aren't available to people? I think it's not just social in terms of collective beliefs or actions. I think it's the way the institutions that organise social life make things more or less possible that need a lot of attention as well. So... Well, I think that's a really hopeful place to end because in spite of all of your issues, and I think it's really good to question what's happening, your point really of what's going on in the UK is that is that some of those changes are beginning to be made. It's, it is beginning to be like a pretty easy choice for people. And they know other people who are making this choice to be vegan. And, and so within that, it seems like there's a lot of hope that I'm going to stick to my guns and say, all right. One day, everybody's just, it's just going to be over. <laughs> and people will think, why did we do that to these poor creatures? I'm sticking with it. I think there is hope. And I think hope is the note that I tried to end the book on, that, that despite all of these concerns about the limits of commercialization and the way that that can't, may or may not undercut more expansive political opportunities, there is something really hopeful that I, I remember sitting in front of, I remember going out for a meal with a group of people who played American football, uh, which which has become quite big in the UK, incidentally. I'm but, so sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> dreadful <you> know, game. <laughs> but but the, the, it was kind of really interesting because the year before, we'd all gone out for a meal and everyone was eating meat. Well, most of the people were eating meat. And then a year later, most people were eating vegetarian at least and were talking about oat milk. And and I was thinking like, wow, this is what a sh- shift. I would never have imagined 10 years ago we have such a shift in such a small space of time. It's obviously a very anecdotal story, but I just think like that is a, that is a, really, a real difference in a material sense. I totally agree that I think the more that veganism becomes available, the more people will, it's not just going to happen automatically, but it gives the opening for people to think about animals. And hopefully, I mean, I think the work continues because they could easily, as you point out so cogently in your book, just change behaviors without thinking about animals. And of course, billions of, upon billions of animals continue to suffer. But if people really do start connecting it to animals. And that's the work that lies in front of us. I, I do think that there's an enormous amount of hope. So a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Eva. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. 
Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from the UK. You might've heard about this. UK Watchdog bans vegan TV ad for showing violence towards animals. This article is from The Guardian, and apparently this uh, watchdog, the Advertising Standards something, received 63 complaints about this ad, which was put out by Vegan Friendly UK. And what it did was it juxtaposed film of people eating meat with pictures of of. Things like um, a fish head still gasping for air, a live piglet alongside a pig with its eyes closed, and a cow's face that appeared to have tears coming from its eye. It's not even graphic. Another clip showed a cow's skinned head with its eyes and teeth still present. All right, that's pretty graphic. You know, the point was that this is exactly, exactly uh, a very minimal version of what happens to animals whose bodies uh, people are consuming. But no, uh, first they said it was too bad for children. And then they said, no, it just, because it showed gratuitous violence toward animals. Like, really? Like, if you consider this to be gratuitous violence towards animals, then why are you still eating them? It's just so crazy. Vegan Friendly said that the ad was intended to highlight an individual's potential hypocrisy. They're so polite about it and the contradictions between what people said and their actions. But, you know, apparently they're not supposed to, they're not supposed to know what really happens. The, the Advertising Standards Association, I think that's the name of it, determined that several clips were likely to cause distress to both younger and adult audiences. Well, I'm sure it would. Like, it causes distress to me, just knowing what happens to animals. Why wouldn't it cause distress to them? God forbid... People should know the truth. Just God forbid. All right, our next story is from our favorite commentator over at Meeting Place, Hannah Thompson Weeman, though she is now, I think she's the president of the Animal Agriculture Alliance now. She's still writing her column. Documentary blames meat for the, quote, end of medicine. All right, this is the newest documentary out, and she's upset about it. It's uh, produced by, as she puts it, the same writer-producer behind previous hit pieces, Cowspiracy and What the Health. And its purpose is connecting meat consumption and animal welfare to the emergence of existential health threats such as zoonotic disease, chronic disease, and perhaps even more worryingly, antimicrobial resistance. Well, we all know that that's just true. <laughs> like, it's just true. I shouldn't even say it's not true. She does point out that Joaquin Phoenix, her favorite, and Rooney Mara are, were involved as executive producers. 
And uh, she's upset about it. And she wants people to do something about it. She's upset that the pandemic drew more eyes to the topic of zoonotic diseases, because God forbid we should be looking at that, something they take full advantage of in the film. So unfair of them. She does say the film doesn't have much new to say, which, you know, I guess from her point of view, she really knows. And like, you know this stuff, I know this stuff, she knows this stuff. So it's not news. But the point is, it's bringing it to people who don't know this because nobody knows it. The central premise, she says, seems to be, as always, that if everyone around the world went vegan, both individuals and the planet would be healthier. In addition to discussion of potential future pandemics coming from animal agriculture, the topic of antibiotic resistance is a main focus. She just wants people to be on guard. Uh, she says it's not, it's not getting a, a lot of attention right now, and she doesn't want people to add fuel to the fire, but people should Make sure you have resources available explaining how your company or organization is committed to safeguarding both animal and public health and the responsible use of antibiotics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, just drag out all of those charming talking points. Why don't you? You know them well. All right, this article. All right, I'm not quite sure what to do about this because I don't like to accuse anybody of not being honest. This is from whatpoultry.com, but it's apparently about beef. The vegans who bought beef this is by one Mark Clemens. And uh, he starts off his question with one that I would agree with. Why on earth would vegans buy beef? And then he, he talks about how people just don't know. People just don't know the truth about agriculture, which is true. They are ignorant of how farmers treat animals. Well, you know, that's true. And a farmer's negative impact on the environment. So he's talking about this program in the UK, the Leaf Open Farm Sunday, which seek to show the public firsthand what it means to be a farmer and the work that farmers do to produce food. And this farmer opened his farm to the public, and then it somehow switches to the public being being vegans. For some, allowing a group of vegans onto a farm may sound alarm bells. Well, yeah, to most of you, I have to say it, it does. And he's attended events where farmers have been encouraged not to allow anyone onto their farms unless directly involved in the business. Well, yeah, that does seem pretty standard. But in this case, the results were more than positive. The farmer who also had a shop on site, reported that after seeing the farm, his vegan visitors bought cuts of beef. Now, like I said, I don't want to accuse anybody of not being totally honest, but this just sounds a little suspicious to me. We don't have any reports from the vegans. We only have Ruth's report from the farmer, uh, who says all of these vegans just, they his farm, they looked at it, and they said, oh, never mind, I'm going to buy some beef. <laughs> They reported that they were following a vegan diet for environmental reasons. Well, that would have to be kind of, uh, you know, it would be kind of even harder to convince anybody that vegans who were animal rights vegans just suddenly decided, eh, what the hell, they're only cows. But having spent time on the farm and having learned more about it, how did they learn about it? Did this, this bozo tell them about it? And it's beef. They have environmental concerns. They just decided that beef is fine. Then they had a much greater understanding of how cattle were raised, and this made them think differently. A great shame that they did not buy chicken, but you see my point. As I mentioned before, this is from a site that is about poultry. Oh, and he's suggesting that this principle should be applicable anywhere. I agree. Let every let us all onto the farms. Yeah, I you know, I don't really want to go, but I'd do it. I'd do it because if the animals have to be there, then if I'm allowed on to see it, I'd come too. I I, I don't think I'd go to the store and buy dead bodies though. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. 
Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.